Welcome to Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. Tonight, U.S. Representative Diane Watson and Korean Ambassador Lee Tae-sik are on hand to discuss, should Congress pass the Korean Free Trade Agreement? The recently negotiated free trade agreement between the United States and Korea is the most ambitious trade deal the U.S. has contemplated since NAFTA. Congress has yet to vote on it. For Los Angeles, with the largest population of Koreans outside of Korea, the economic consequences of the agreement's passage could be huge. On Thursday, August 23rd, Sokalo invited to the table U.S. Representative Diane Watson, South Korean Ambassador Lee Tae-sik, Jesse Swanheiser of the California Fair Trade Coalition, and former U.S. Trade Representative Brian Peck to lay out the pros and cons of this agreement. The debate includes discussion of the historic ties and strategic interests shared by Korea and the U.S., worker safety concerns, and whether completion of the agreement was rushed in order to beat the expiration of fast-track authority enjoyed by the U.S. president in trade negotiations. The hope for reunification between the two Koreas rounds out the evening. This event, part of the Sokolo Public Square Lecture Series, was recorded before a live audience at the Southwestern Law School in the historic Bullocks-Wilshire Building in Koreatown. Here is the moderator for tonight's event, regular guest host, Andres Martinez, Irvine Senior Fellow at the New America Foundation. So let's get this started. The issue before us is this very ambitious, important trade agreement that has been negotiated between the United States and the Republic of Korea which now awaits congressional ratification. Trade is one of those incredibly wonky, cumbersome subjects that is so important and so meaningful to our daily lives in ways that can be very good and sometimes not so good. And it's always a challenge for people to discuss these trade agreements in a way that gets beyond the jargon of trade negotiations I remember writing about agricultural subsidies and WTO rules and whether payments to farmers fell into a blue box or a green box. And these, these weren't real boxes. These were boxes that bureaucrats in Geneva had invented on chalkboards to sort of try to understand what they were talking about. And it's like this whole subculture of trade jargon that's very hard to penetrate. And I think that's the value of, of panels like this. Not that I can maybe translate some of these difficult concepts, but that's why we have this great panel, and I, I thank all of you, too, for being here. So maybe to kick things off, we should first turn to the ambassador, Ambassador Lee. Give us a, an overview from your perspective, from the perspective of Seoul, as to what the intent is of this free trade agreement between Washington and Seoul, and what you think it would translate into in terms of living standards for people in Korea and in the United States. Thank you. Yes, this trade agreement is uh, very important in the sense that our two countries' economic or trade relationship has been quite significantly strengthened in the past decade or so. Perhaps you are aware that uh, our bilateral trade has reached $8 billion as of uh, last year. And also our trade investment relationship has also expanded very significantly. As of uh, last year, perhaps U.S. overall investment to Korea was about 35 billion U.S. dollars, while Korea's investment to the United States has been some kind of 17 or 18 billion dollars. Here, our 
investment to the U.S. has been half of U.S. investment to Korea. What is the point here? Uh, that is that our two-way trade as well as investment is uh, it, it's really two-way street. It's not one-way street. Therefore, do we want to expand our trade and investment relationship in the future for the sake of coming up more economic growth and uh, benefit for the industry as well as uh, consumers? The answer seems to be yes. That is why we have agreed to launch these negotiations on pre-trade agreement. This trade agreement was negotiated over a period of uh, 13, 14 months, and we concluded it June 30. Now we are expecting to have it approved in the U.S. Congress as well as Korean National Assembly. Why we need to have it done? Perhaps, you know, our overall economic and trade relationship has been on the rise and significantly improved compared with previous years and ever strengthening. Why do we need this free trade agreement? The answer is very simple. If we look back what Korea's market share in the United States has been and what U.S. market share in Korea has been, some while ago, U.S product market share in Korea was about 40 percentage points. That was quite a significant one. Nowadays, it uh, came down to 20 percentage points. It's become halved. U.S. market share in Korea, that's been reduced by the half. And also, our Korean uh, market share in the United States, that used to be somewhere between 4.5 percentage points to 5, which has been reduced to 2.5% at the most. So it's been also halved in terms of Korea's market share in the United States. While Chinese market share has ever expanding, which has been to 15, 16% point from 7, 8% point over a decade ago, while Japanese market share has been consistently remained the same, somewhere 7, 8% point. So we lose each other's market in the past decade or so. Therefore, if we want to expand our mutual trade, perhaps we will have to come up with different formula, and that is the pre-trade agreement. So we want to give you more market share. We want to have more share here in the United States. Whether this is going to be good for our two countries' economy and for our consumers, I think the answer is yes, because trade generates growth, growth generates employment and uh, support. We are pretty much determined to go ahead with this, and that is where we are. I don't need to go into every bit of detail at this stage on this uh, free trade agreement, but let me just say in general that this agreement has been agreed upon by two governments, has been negotiated rather aggressively and actively, and we concluded that we accommodate quite uh, great uh, list of U.S. complaints and concerns, and we are in good shape. So this is a good opportunity for our two countries to take advantage rather to miss it. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Ambassador. That's a nice overview. Let me turn over to Brian. As a former negotiator of these treaties, if you could try to explain from the American vantage point, what is the real world significance of a deal like this, given that as the ambassador pointed out, there already is quite a vibrant commercial relationship between the two countries. I mean, what would we expect to be the uh, aftermath of such a trade deal? Sure. 
Thank you. I think I'll focus mainly on California since we're here in uh, Los Angeles. I think the real uh, economic impact is in terms of greater market access for U.S. producers of goods, U.S. service providers in the Korean market. As Ambassador Lee already mentioned, there is a vibrant uh, trade relationship between Korea and the United States, and particularly with California, um, over $7 billion, I think, in California trade alone. But in terms of market access for manufactured goods, for example, Korea makers already enjoy a low, relatively low tariff rate access to the U.S. market. The tariffs that a lot of U.S. manufactured goods face in Korea are higher, and those will be eliminated or lowered significantly within the first three years of the agreement. So there's greater market access for manufactured goods. One in five jobs in California, manufacturing jobs, are tied to international trade. I think one of the highlights of this agreement is in the greater market access for services, financial services, professional services. Services provide the greatest number of employment, again, here in California. And the Korean market, as it is, is a very vibrant market that would benefit from the products and ingenuity of U.S. service providers there. There is greater access in terms of rule of law for protection of intellectual property. The entertainment industry, of course, here is very important in Los Angeles. There's a lot of benefits, I think. Two, in the real world, and perhaps by two examples, um, two existing FTAs, sometimes they come under criticism, especially NAFTA. Since NAFTA has been in force for over 10 years, California exports have increased by over 160% to Canada and Mexico. Since the U.S.-Chile FTA came into effect since 2004, California exports to Chile have increased by 180%. So these agreements do work, and they do have a real impact on California businesses. Thanks. I'm torn between uh, going to Jesse for a note of skepticism or to our U.S. Congresswoman. Hold off, Jesse, with the skepticism, and maybe we'll get some over here too. But I, you are the one person, Congresswoman Watson, on this panel who will probably get to vote on this trade agreement. How do you process? I mean, at one at one level, you have to deal with the sort of timeless debate in Washington on trade generally and free trade versus more of a protectionist attitude or the debate about what kind of standards to put in all these agreements. On the other hand, you also are having to look at the local impact. Brian touched on sort of the state impact to some degree, but you are sort of in at ground zero of how this would impact this community and representing a city and a part of a city that is one of the sort of great Korean communities on the planet outside of Korea. So how do you process all that, and and which way are you going to vote? The Korea and uh, U.S. FTA is of great importance to my congressional district, and uh, my congressional district includes all of Koreatown, Culver City, and Hollywood. This agreement will have a tremendous impact on the state of California. As you know, we're one of those... uh, Pacific Basin states, and we are doing a lot with Southeast Asia and uh, other part of Asia, too. And this agreement will play a great role in the Pacific Rim rapid economic expansion. And today, Korea is California's fifth largest trading partner and the Los Angeles Custom District's third largest trading partner with nearly $18 billion in two-way trade in the year 2005. Expanded trade between Korea and the U.S. will translate into more jobs and business for Los Angeles, the basin, and the state where most 
consistently and significantly the ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach handle. 43% of cargo containers shipped to the United States. So the Korea-U.S. FTA is also highly important to California's ethnic Korean community. And as you know, California is home to the largest population of Koreans outside of Korea. So this is very, very significant. And in my own district, and this is the 33rd congressional district, Korean Americans have built a very thriving business and cultural area, and we're in it right now. And, you know, when we talk about being in it, I'm sitting in the room where I used to come to buy a lot of my clothes here at Bullock's Wilshire. <laughs> I tell you, there's a significance here uh, in being in this building. You're listening to U.S. Representative Diane Watson, South Korean Ambassador Lee Tae-sik, Jesse Swanheiser of the California Fair Trade Coalition, and former U.S. Trade Representative Brian Peck with regular guest host Andres Martinez. I'm Claudia Vasquez. This is Socalo Radio. If you have comments, critiques, or kudos about Socalo Radio, send them to comments at socalola.org. That's C-O-M-M-E-N-T-S at Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot org. More information is at our website, socalola.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. Now we return to our panel and the question, should Congress pass the free trade agreement? How much are you hearing from constituents on this trade well, deal? And, and, and do the calls run mostly, you know, please support or oppose, or how does that? Let me say this. There is a force out there. It's called a labor force that doesn't want another free trade agreement. Mm-hmm. And you can understand why. We've lost thousands, tens of thousands of jobs in this country because of our trade agreements with South America and uh, Central America, etc. I get emails and telephone calls and visits from uh, labor unions that are quite concerned. Um, There are those who don't want any more free trade agreements, and I can understand that. But we have to look at what is in the best interest, not only for the Korean uh, business uh, sector, but U.S. business sector as well. So I look forward to looking at the specifics of the legislation once it's drafted and the ambassador is really on a route to work with certain members in Washington and to go to San Francisco and uh, the various communities and see what can be worked out and what the concerns are. It sounds like you're a maybe at this point. Well, I'm in support of it. Oh, you're, you're in support? Yes, okay. I am. I see. I'm in support of it. Okay. But I also listen to those people right. who contact my office, and, you know, we tend to amend along the way, so the process is not final well, let's, and over Let's yet. turn over to Jesse. Mm-hmm. Um, Jesse, I understand your coalition has a tradition of raising objections to some of these agreements that have already been passed. Uh, we were talking earlier about the Central American Agreement. How large does this Korean agreement loom on on your horizon and the issue in CAFTA and and also with the North American Free Trade Agreement as it pertained to Mexico and what's a lot of the trade debate has to do with conditions in terms of trading between countries with very disparate standards of living. 
And Korea is sort of one of these countries that's been so remarkably successful in the last few decades in terms of kind of jumping from, in many ways, being a developing country to being among the industrialized powers to some degree. So does that kind of make this a a less contentious agreement than, say, CAFTA? Or or tell us what are some of the concerns that your coalition has. Yeah, sure. Um, I think that oftentimes this debate is is mischaracterized. And in fact, with with all due respect to the the moderator, the paragraph that introduced today's discussion really focused on this debate being between free trade on the one side and protectionists on the other. And I really do think that the term protectionist is thrown around certainly at me personally a fair amount and, and at other interests that I represent. I think that it is as I said, a mischaracterization, and ultimately really stymies the debate that needs to be happening. We're not talking about whether or not the U.S. and Korea will engage in trade. Of course, we shall continue to engage in trade. The real question, again, is not going to be whether or not we engage in, in trade, and I think the ambassador touched on it in his comments about his belief that this is the particular formula that is appropriate for engaging in increased trade between the two nations. Our coalition takes the position that this is an inappropriate formula for engaging in trade, not necessarily opposed to trade uh, per se. And in fact, I have had the opportunity over the course of the last nine months to meet several times with worker unions from Korea. And the U.S. unions, uh, in their concern about job protection here, uh, are joined uh, very much so by the various Korean union federations uh, in their opposition to this agreement because of their concern about how this will impact wages um, and other sectors that are important to, to the Korean society. In terms of whether or not this, in terms of where this fits into the larger political spectrum for our coalition, we very much like Congress, I think, take things in waves. And currently it looks as if uh, this particular agreement is unlikely to come up anytime soon, or at least in the next several months. And I think that the administration and the Democratic leadership anticipate dealing with several other free trade agreements, particularly that with Peru and Panama, prior to dealing with this particular agreement. And so at the current time, our coalition is certainly focused on the votes that we anticipate in, in September. But to, to no small extent, the way that that debate shapes up and the way that those votes um, fall out will be a litmus test and influence in a big way how the Korean agreement is framed and, and when, it, when it may see a, a House floor vote. But just to be clear, so the coalition feels that disagreement with Korea is not desirable or acceptable in its present form? Correct, yeah. The, the, the current formula that, that, that has been negotiated in, in, I believe the ambassador said 13 to 14 months, I was under the impression it was a very shorter timeline, in, in 10 months, we think that things were rushed far too much for political reasons, particularly due to the expiration of presidential fast track. For example, Korea negotiated an agreement with Chile, and the negotiations took three years. The dollar figures that we're talking about in an agreement with Chile are far smaller than those that we're talking about with the United States. Um, And yet, with the type of money we're talking about, we feel like 10 months was a a far too rushed timeline. There's nothing like a a deadline to focus the mind. Um, And the deadline was July, is that correct, for the... What you mentioned was the fast track, which is what allowed the president to negotiate a trade deal that can be submitted to Congress for an up-or-down vote without uh, going through all the amendments. And the the Korea agreement, I believe, was signed the day prior to the expiration of of that. As a journalist, as a former journalist, I can appreciate that power of a deadline. (laughs) But but what about, I mean, you keep saying the formula is, is not the right one. What 
flesh that out a little bit. Sure. Uh, you asked a little bit about NAFTA, and I think that the agricultural provisions, as, as an example of a variety of the things that we're concerned about in this agreement, um, play out, are, are, we expect they'll play out very similar in Korea as NAFTA has played out in Mexico due to um, uh, similarities between the, the farming communities um, and the dependence of certain communities on particular crops that under the agricultural rules of this particular formula, we expect to see highly subsidized U.S. agribusiness being able to sell at below what would be an acceptable market price for many Korean farmers. And depending on who you speak with, the estimates are in the millions of farmers that are expected to be put out of business in Korea as a result of the agreement. So in terms of uh, the specific formula, the agricultural provisions would be one of those places where, where we have concerns. Brian, you want to jump in? Sure. Thank you. Um, I think the U.S.-Korea FTA is different uh, on that aspect than NAFTA, and I'll defer to Ambassador Lee, who probably knows more details on this. But as you say, the, uh, the, the possible displacement of, of uh, Korean farmers with the, uh, the greater access of, of agricultural goods coming in from the U.S., um, the Korean government has already announced um, several programs to help assist farmers to make a transition either from an agricultural background to some other type of sector or to help them out switch to other types of crops in which they still would be a, uh, have a, a viable uh, market presence. In addition, I think, you know, Grant, there is an impact on farmers, but that's market competition. And, you know, the other side is that it benefits Korean consumers who up until now face very high prices for basic agricultural commodities. They will benefit from, from the agricultural goods coming from the U.S. at more competitive prices. So I think, you know, sure, yes, it will have some negative impact on, on Korean farmers. The Korean government is addressing that through several programs. And I think the larger population of Korean consumers will benefit from that, that access that this agreement gives uh, for agricultural goods. Listening to U.S. Representative Diane Watson, South Korean Ambassador Lee Tae-sik, Jesse Swanheiser of the California Fair Trade Coalition, and former U.S. Trade Representative Brian Peck, with regular guest host Andres Martinez. This is Socalo Radio. I'm Claudia Vasquez. We'll continue in a moment. Stay tuned to Socalo Radio. Next time on Latino USA, a horrific shooting in Newark, New Jersey, involving an undocumented immigrant, puts the spotlight on the issue of sanctuary cities, sanctuary and immigrant rights. That's this week on Latino USA, Sunday evening at 10 on 89.3 KPCC. Welcome back to Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. Now we return to our panel, U.S. Representative Diane Watson, South Korean Ambassador Lee Tae-sik, Jesse Swanheiser of the California Fair Trade Coalition, and former U.S. Trade Representative Brian Peck, with regular guest host Andres Martinez, as we ask the question, should Congress pass the Korea Free Trade Agreement? One of the endless debates on all these uh, globalization trade questions and, and how you regulate kind of the global economy always involved the degree to which these bilateral commercial treaties should contain regulatory regimes that affect labor, uh, the environment, and, and things that some might argue are better regulated in a sort of multilateral forum like a, at the WTO level 
or the International Labor Organization, that to kind of reinvent the wheel each time you negotiate a treaty between two countries where there's not always sort of a parity of bargaining power to begin with is kind of an odd way to go about it when you're just trying to access each other's markets. I don't know enough to know the degree to which labor standards and environmental standards were taken up in this agreement. I understand it was part of the preconditions that some of the the Democratic leaders uh, asked for at the the outset. But did that happen? Or, I mean, where is this in that range of agreements that are just straightforward trade agreements and agreements that have a lot of other things attached to make people feel better about the impact on labor markets and the environment? I ask that, I guess, uh, of both of you. And then we can turn to the ambassador and the congresswoman again. Uh, sure. The, the the administration initially negotiated an agreement that was very much a straightforward free trade agreement absent of any of the labor or environmental provisions that have been the concern of, of many in civil society. Later, following the November elections, when the Democrats took control of the Congress, um, a variety of the Ways and Means members uh, entered into negotiations uh, with your former boss, I believe, mm-hmm. regarding the inclusion of labor and environmental provisions. Um, and I think as we were discussing previously, there was actually some disagreement as to whether or not the Chorus U.S. FTA would be, uh, whether or not those labor and environmental provisions would be added to this agreement or whether or not the labor and environmental provisions would only be added to the two agreements with Peru and Panama. And to be quite honest with you, uh, I'm not sure that that has actually been settled. To the extent that I understand it, there are those that you ask inside the administration which will assure you that the labor and environmental provisions have been added to this agreement, and there are others uh, inside the Democratic Caucus who will tell you that those provisions have not been added. And so I'd be curious to know if anyone has uh, a final answer on whether or not this agreement has been amended to include those. Let me just say that we haven't seen the language yet. And the administration has been negotiating, but it's got to go into the committee, the Ways and Means, and it will be laid open. And the public will be there to hear the debate. And those who hold great expectations, one side or the other, will be able to comment as well. The language will not be final until it is voted on and allowed out of committee or held in the committee. Mr. Ambassador, what's your... Uh, this uh, negotiation on uh, labor and environment was something that uh, we have to talk about, right? At the beginning, when we concluded our negotiations, uh, we already have this environment chapter as well as labor chapter included in our previous agreement. But sometimes uh, this past spring, we were told that uh, a new language should be put in place in the existing agreement which is pretty much kind of template. And uh, this was quite similar to and exactly the same to other countries, including Peru, Panama, and Colombia. When we were given this template language, we had our thought on this in terms of what is the difference that uh, we have already included in our agreement and this new language. But uh, that was the position of U.S. uh, administration in coordination with the Democratic uh, Congress. This was the kind of deal that we will have to accept one way or another. Then when we looked into the language rather in detail, we found that this is pretty much up to 
our standard because in the case of Korea, there are some uh, eight ILO-related conventions, as you perhaps know. And in the case of Korea, we have exceeded four conventions already, more than U.S. has done. U.S. has exceeded about two or three, if I'm not mistaken. We have exceeded four ILO-related conventions. And therefore, when we have looked at the language, that was pretty much what we can do in terms of 1998 ILO declaration on labor rights, whether we are going to include in our agreement and whether we are going to enforce it. And if we don't, we are going to be subject to a certain penalty. Are we going to accept that or not in the light of what our labor standard has been maintained in the country over the past several decades? So we concluded that as far as this labor standard is concerned, we don't have any serious problem to accept democratic language. It's still a little bit unclear to me you know, not being as well-versed in this area. Um, what, what exactly are we talking about? Like, I mean, I, I know that you talk about the ILO conventions, but just give us a sense of the change from the original chapter that was in there to what they came back with. Are we talking about the rights to organize? Are we talking about... What, if you could just give us some specifics. Well, yes, the right of uh, association and uh, prohibition of uh, child labor and also right of uh, uh, organization as well as association uh, and support. All these important labor rights has been a part of 1998 ILO declaration. And that principle has to be declared again in our pre-trade agreement as an important part, and uh, then we will have to abide by that agreement. But in our previous agreement, we have pretty much done uh, to include all those important requirements in our agreement. And the only big difference that we had was not in terms of the language or principles or spirit, but in terms of what happened if one side is found not to abide by the agreed uh, framework or agreed agreement then are we going to subject the uh, dispute settlement process in terms of uh, labor-specific dispute settlement procedure or similar to other trade-related dispute settlement procedure? That was the big difference. Mm-hmm. But uh, at the end of the day, we had quite a serious discussion on this. But eventually, we agreed to go ahead with uh, what U.S. had uh, proposed to us. So this is... Uh, quite a big uh, deal as far as Korea is concerned because we wanted to accommodate all your concerns on labor standards, even if we have made quite a significant advance in our labor standard consistent with uh, ILO-related conventions and regulations. You talk about uh, Korean trade unions' concerns toward this free trade agreement. They have their own right to look at this issue from different perspectives. But one thing I can tell you, is that as far as the automobile sector is concerned, our trade union people or our blue-collar workers are paid more than the white collars in our automobile industry. This fact is not well known to you. So, I mean, our trade union, they have their own views on this. And yet, we are going to offer more opportunity to U.S. business entities to enjoy the market in Korea. 
and also we are going to abide by the all ILO-related labor standards to its maximum. Can I just open a parenthesis and shift back to um, Jesse? So far you've indicated a, a great deal of concern for um, the Korean farmers and the impact of this on, on them. But if we bring it back to sort of our domestic concerns and the reason why we need to focus on labor standards in dealing with a country like Korea, what is it that folks at the coalition or that uh, if you could sort of speak for the uh, Democratic leadership that would have insisted on this? I mean, don't, don't ask me to do that. But I mean, <laughs> what are we really concerned about here? Um, I think what, what we're concerned about, and it's a very cliche term, and, and I hesitate to use it, but there's always a discussion about free trade being a race to the bottom. And I think it's been overused to the point where it almost has lost its value as a, as a real evaluation of the impacts of trade liberalization in the world. But when you create a single pool of a labor force and parts of that labor force are paid far below another part of that labor force, the inevitability of competition is, is that you will indeed lower those wages that are given to people on the higher end of that scale. And I think that um, NAFTA was a, an interesting example of that in terms of creating uh, unfair competition between workforces in that uh, what we saw is, is that I think about half of the union drives in this country during the first five years of NAFTA were thwarted by threats of moving the business to Mexico. So this is an example of, of the downward pressure on wages and benefits. And I think that as everybody in this country knows, we're dealing with a tremendous health care crisis. We have a system where health care is based on an, employer, an employer-based system. Um, and when U.S. workers are indeed competing against workers who receive far less or, or who don't receive health care, for example, there is an inevitability that you will see a lowering of standards in this country as well. And, and I think that it, it may be a bit theoretical, um, but I think that anybody with a, with a brain can see that when two labor forces of a very unequal nature are forced to compete, uh, things like benefits, wages, and whatnot are, are, are destined to decline in, in the more developed or the, the, the higher economic uh, country. Brian, do you want to add something? Well, I mean, there's no argument that, yes, uh, trade does have an impact, and sometimes negative one, on particularly manufacturing jobs in the U.S. But again, I go back to how many jobs does it save? Um, I mentioned at the outset that uh, at least one-fifth of all manufacturing jobs in California are directly tra- uh, tied to, to exports. And as you may know, Korea is currently negotiating a free trade agreement with the EU. It is about to enter, correct me if I'm wrong, Ambassador, they're seriously thinking of entering into free trade agreement negotiations uh, with Australia. And those will move forward. And both those, those, the EU and Australia, are very intent on signing agreements, in part because of the U.S.-Korea FTA that's been negotiated. They don't want their manufacturing jobs to be lost to the advantage that U.S. manufacturing companies have with this agreement. If we do fail to, to uh, ratify this agreement, our manufacturing jobs that are tied to exports and that can benefit to the greater market access that I mentioned earlier to the Korean market will lose out to those that have market access in the form of limited tariffs in the EU and Australia. So yes, there are negative impacts, but I think you, know, you have to look at the, the other side, and that is we lose out in that, that, uh, that race, you know, whatever you want to call it, because other countries will step in our place for those free trade agreements. I'm sorry, you wanted to add something? I, I just, it, it's always an interesting thing that when we talk about job loss, um, what's generally raised by uh, free trade advocates is the idea that what we actually have from, from resulting from these agreements is job creation. Um, and, and I think that that certainly is the case here in California. NAFTA did indeed create, I think it was between 70 and 80,000 jobs 
specifically as a result of NAFTA. The government's able to keep statistics on that. The unfortunate consequence is, is that more than 200,000 jobs were lost directly as a result of NAFTA. And so no one is arguing that free trade isn't going to create jobs. The question is, is on balance at the end of the day, have we, have we ended up having a larger negative effect than a positive effect? And I think that this is important consideration. You're listening to U.S. Representative Diane Watson, South Korean Ambassador Lee Tae-sik, Jesse Swanheiser of the California Fair Trade Coalition, and former U.S. Trade Representative Brian Peck with regular guest host Andres Martinez. I'm Claudia Vasquez. This is Socalo Radio. If you have comments, critiques, or kudos about Socalo Radio, send them to comments at socalola.org. That's C-O-M-M-E-N-T-S at Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot org. More information is at our website, socalola.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. Now we return to our panel and the question, should Congress pass the free trade agreement? I wanted to just touch on the agricultural sector. On the one hand, Korea has been one of the most uh, resistant countries when it comes to the idea of engaging in a system of, of freer trade for farm products and agricultural goods. And when you look at the global negotiations at the WTO, the so-called ongoing Doha round, which involves a lot of this question of whether or not to open up agriculture Uh, to free trade, and a lot of richer countries are resistant. Korea, uh, my understanding, is on the sort of far end of that spectrum saying uh, we don't necessarily want to go there. And the the U.S. is a little bit on that end too, but not quite so much because we have winners and losers when it comes to agricultural trade, and the EU is very resistant. But here you have an example of, at the same time, a deal being negotiated bilaterally with the U.S., apparently is gaining a lot of access to the Korean agricultural market for U.S. goods because Korea obviously has offsetting desires to access other markets in the U.S. So they're perhaps willing to give up much more access in that negotiation than at the WTO. But the the sort of larger question is, to what extent is it a positive development or a negative development that these questions are, are resolved increasingly at an ad hoc level with each negotiation between two countries as opposed to approaching it from a kind of global perspective, you know, which is why, I guess, Geneva was invented because you were supposed to you know, resolve these things there um, with the WTO and all these international bodies. I mean, all those sort of multilateral negotiations seem to be stalled. And so the U.S., particularly under, you were very busy, Brian, under the Bush administration, has been signing FTA agreements with, you know, just about, I mean, practically the Vatican got one. I mean, it was just, and, and is, so I would pose the question to you, Brian, is this a, a positive de- development from a, the American perspective, or would it be more desirable to try to gain access to these markets and, and kind of regulate the way that that's done in a more comprehensive multilateral forum? No, I, I think the objective of the U.S. and I think of, of Korea as well is, is that I obviously do it on a multilateral level through the WTO is the most um, optimal way. But as you mentioned, the talks have been stalled for several years with no real promise of moving forward just because it has reached a point where you've got so many different interests involved and they're not willing to budge. 
And so I think, the, and it's not just the U.S., um, Korea, uh, Japan, several other, the EU have, because seeing the lack of progress in Doha, have realized, well, what's the next alternative? And that is to reach out to these bilateral or maybe plurilateral type of agreements, regional agreements, as a substitute. You raise a valid concern, and the U.S. has expressed that concern as well, is that you kind of have this kind of spaghetti mix of different free trade agreements with different rules of origin, different tariffs. It gets to be very confusing for a, a small business person to deal with the different uh, regimes that are out there. Again, I think that goes to the support or the need to, to try to move forward on the Doha round. But given the lack of success there, the lack of progress, countries need to turn to you know, protecting their economic interests. And seeing other countries getting involved in these free trade agreements, they pursue an equally aggressive uh, agenda. But you, as, as a sort of U.S. negotiator on these deals, do you feel that the end result from the sort of narrow self-interest in the United States might be better in these kind of negotiations? Because, I mean, you know, Korea is a trillion-dollar economy. It's an, a country that can sort of, you know, defend itself and stand on its own, maybe more so than, you know, El Salvador when you're negotiating a CAFTA. But in general, were you, like, more confident that you could get a, a better deal out of these countries negotiating one-on-one then you might going to Doha and having to like you know having to negotiate with a block of countries you know in terms of agriculture that include you know Brazil and India and all the others or the EU. I mean, do you feel like this is messier, but maybe in the end better? Well, I sure. I mean, just you know the fact that it's a lot easier to deal with one party rather than in the WTO where it's by consensus. I mean, you've got and, and a weak, a weaker party is kind of what I'm trying to get at, no. or is that not? No, I don't think that that's part of the calculation. I mean, I think. You know, with the free trade agreement, um, as it is with this one, there's not just the economic value of it. There's a, there's a lot. There's political. There's there's security. There's there's bilateral relations. There's the strengthening of ties. I think that's very pertinent for this particular agreement with Korea. Right. Central America, the same way, trying to help support the the budding democracies down there. So there are a lot of other reasons that go into the decision to to uh, embark on negotiations with a particular partner. Um, not all economic. Right. I think that's that's a nice uh, transition. I'm glad that Brian raised the uh, security aspect. I mean, we would be remiss if we didn't remember that, you know, tens of thousands of Americans did give their lives to secure and the freedom of of Korea. And it's it's had a country that's had a rocky history since, but now it's a prosperous democracy. And there's a real emotional tie there. And it's also a country that remains uh, located in an incredibly fraught, uh, strategic uh, part of the world with your neighbor to the north and all the rest of it. But Ambassador, if Mr. Ambassador, if you could address a little bit this larger notion of, of the extent to which this agreement plays into a larger security relationship and, and how might that be affected, say, if the politics in Washington are such that this deal does not come to pass? Yes. Uh, this U.S.-Korea relationship is uh, characterized by its security partnership that has been the case since 1953 when we forged this alliance partnership. That has become the backbone of uh, Korea's economic as well as political success. On the basis of this strong U.S.-Korea alliance partnership, Korea has achieved its uh, political democracy, uh, which is the envy of all third world countries. But at the same time, Korea has become 11th largest economy in the world. Now, when we talk about this free trade agreement between our two countries, number one economy in the world and number 11 economy in the world, they are going to marry each other, not for the sake of convenience, but for the sake of 
purpose, economic purpose, and otherwise, our overall tariff rate is much higher than yours. And your market has been open market. That has been the case for quite some decades. And now, as a result of this free trade agreement, we are going to lower our tariff. We are going to open our market. We are ready to tear down the so-called non-tariff barrier to trade to give you more market opportunity. We have about 500 business coalitions in Washington, D.C., which are in support of free trade agreement. They are all business coalition members to support this free trade agreement. Virtually none of U.S. business sectors have opposed to this free trade agreement except from some automobile industry, except from UAW and support. Here, we have this consensus view that this free trade agreement serves the interest of our two countries, but more importantly, you have a strong foothold in Northeast Asia to maintain peace and security in that part of the world. With your economic stakes and interests growing, the region will become much more peaceful because you have your economic interest over there. And the region will have to be opened further to our mutual trade. Yes, you raised the right point whether this regionalism is good for the economic success or multilateralism is good. I mean, that has to be addressed by WTO. And yet, we don't have that agreement. As far as farm goods trade is concerned, that stands in the way of freer trade for world, and that is the case. So until we come up with a multilateral framework which serves everybody's interest, we have to come up with some kind of bilateral agreement. That's the spirit. We like to give you more opportunity on service, agricultural goods, industrial goods, industrial property rights protection, and support. Everything is there. We did go extra miles to accommodate your complaints and concerns. Now you don't like it. I feel somewhat at a loss. Why? For political reason, that's political reason. But one industry or a couple of industries or members of trade unions' interest should dominate the overall U.S. interest or our two countries' economic, political, and security interest. Is that has to be the case? Or you could make a good choice or reasonable choice that serves economic as well as political and security interest for our two countries. Korea was small. Korea was a war-torn country. But thanks to your efforts, Korea has become 11th largest economy. Now we want to do more. Our joint efforts can bring us further to our economic success as well as growth. Thank you, Mr. Ambassador. I, I wanted to give the Congresswoman the, the final word and, and also to this, if you could address the same question when you and your colleagues consider the Korean agreement as opposed to some of the other trade deals that, that are before the Congress, is it looked upon a little bit differently because of the larger security questions? And well, I think there are several different factors, and one of the things is that we fought and we died uh, on that peninsula, U.S. forces, and that's one thing that uh, we've been doing today. The uh, ambassador paid tribute to our veterans who were at a luncheon that we attended. And so we have an interest that is greater than in many of the other countries where we have agreements. Now, I want to caution all of you. This is not a done deal yet. 
It's got to go to Congress. It's going to go to committees. It will go to Ways and Means. And uh, the ambassador is going to be meeting with our chair, Charlie Rangel. He's going to be meeting with our uh, senator, Diane Feinstein, and many other important players in this. We're going to look at the Davis-Bacon provisions in there. We want to be sure that labor is protected on this because that's one of the biggest uh, complaints we got uh, with NAFTA and CAFTA. I did not vote for CAFTA. I wasn't there when NAFTA passed, and that was led by our president at the time, Bill Clinton. So I want you to know we are going to be looking at the protections on both sides, and we want to be sure child labor is really focused on because, you know, in many of these countries, they have violated the provisions. So I want you to know all of you out there will have a voice in this. Your representatives will be sitting on those committees. And it's going to be a comprehensive agreement. But we feel that together, being on the cutting edge, we can really spur not only our economy, but the economy of one of our partners over in a very strategic part of Asia on that peninsula, and we're looking forward, and I just got to take it beyond this one topic, the reuniting of North and South Korea together as one. I'm on my way with other members of Congress on Saturday, and this will be the first time we will go on the other side of the northern border. We're going through the western uh, entrance. We hope that together our two nations can work out an agreement that will be beneficial to our economy where we don't lose jobs and we don't let them ignore the provisions that we have put into other laws to protect workers. So I'm optimistic about it, but it is not over yet. And I invite all of you to have your say. Watch us closely. We represent you, so you be sure that you have a voice and get in touch with us. And with that... Thank uh, you. Would you have been a maybe on on NAFTA? Uh, With the results that I see now, yes. You're listening to U.S. Representative Diane Watson, South Korean Ambassador Lee Tae-sik, Jesse Swanheiser of the California Fair Trade Coalition, and former U.S. Trade Representative Brian Peck with regular guest host Andres Martinez. I'm Claudia Vasquez. This is Socalo Radio. On Tuesday, September 18th, the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series kicks off its fall season with the Jane Austen Book Club, a screening and conversation with director-screenwriter Robin Swicord, moderated by Pat Morrison, LA Times columnist and host of KPCC's Pat Morrison Show. After an advanced screening, Pat Morrison will sit down with Swicord, who adapted Karen Joy Fowler's best-selling novel for the screen. She also directed The Picture, which stars, among others, Maria Bello and Emily Blunt. Robin Swicord is best known for her screen adaptations of Memoirs of a Geisha, Little Women, and The Perez Family. Join her as she discusses her career as a writer, her transition to film directing, and why she thinks Jane Austen is still all the rage more than two centuries after she published her first novel. More information is at our website, socalola.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. We'll continue tonight's program, Should Congress Pass the Korea Free Trade Agreement, with questions from the audience. Stay tuned to Socalo Radio.
89.3 KPCC reaches a large, active, intelligent audience. To learn how your organization or business can reach that audience, call 213-621-3592. Welcome back to Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. Now it's time for the audience to ask questions of our panel. U.S. Representative Diane Watson, South Korean Ambassador Lee Tae-sik, Jesse Swanheiser of the California Fair Trade Coalition, and former U.S. Trade Representative Brian Peck with regular guest host Andres Martinez. Hi, my name is Richard Choi Birch. I'm from uh, Orange County. Uh, Jesse, I think you're very much worried about the disparity in the labor. Have you been to Korea to really look into their uh, latest labor cost? Uh, no, I have not been to Korea. I have participated in a host of international forums, and, and as I said, I, I have had the opportunity to meet with and, and jointly present with a variety of the different representatives from the Korean Union movement. And so while I have not actually been there myself, I feel very confident that I can take the word of the representatives um, of worker movements in Korea that, that this agreement is not going to be something that, that will be benefiting them. So no, I, if it's an issue of my personal knowledge of Korean labor situation, no, I have not been there. Um, I definitely am receiving this third person, but I believe my sources are m more than solid. My name is Alan Warhafting, and it's really for Mr. Swanheiser and Congresswoman Watson. Sounds like there are a lot of jobs coming up in agriculture and also for knowledge workers. I teach in Los Angeles Unified, and our job is preparing kids to find their way in the world. And a lot of the pathways to the middle class, jobs with benefits, retirement, etc., those have disappeared. Is there a responsibility, and what would you prescribe for Congress to do to counterweight against the victimization that happens with some of these globalization efforts? I think that's a uh, very pertinent observation. Uh, as you know, we see a diminishing middle class. Uh, the rich are getting richer and the poor are uh, recipients of government programs and subsidies, but it's that middle class uh, where people on a middle class income could buy homes and cars and so on. We see that being squeezed. So I think as we start to look at the provisions of this uh, agreement, that's going to be something we're going to focus on. What does this mean to the middle class? One of, the, one of the criticisms of NAFTA was that the Trade Adjustment Assistance Program, which was specifically designed to help retrain workers who lost their jobs as a result of the agreement, it was poorly funded and very narrowly defined in a way such that few of the people who very likely lost their jobs as a result of NAFTA were ever recorded as such and also were not eligible to receive that assistance. Um, I feel very confident that the Democrats are going to go about creating a more robust system for for displaced workers, and yet at the same time, I feel that there is no social program that can replace a good job that has benefits and pays a good wage. And so while we're certainly um, supportive of the idea of developing a stronger and larger umbrella for assisting uh, workers who lose their jobs, it certainly would be our priority that they not lose their jobs in the first place. And I think that several times we've focused here today on the idea that this is largely manufacturing losses. And I think that historically what we have seen, particularly from NAFTA and other agreements, is job loss really focused in the manufacturing 
sector. But offshoring and outsourcing trends are, are alarming. I mean, there's estimates out there that suggest that between 30 and 50 million service sector jobs are going to be lost in the foreseeable future. Many of those here in Los Angeles and in the Bay Area where uh, service industries in, in entertainment and, and computer technology and, and elsewhere. So again, while we're very supportive of the idea of developing a system, I think our primary concern is, is keeping jobs here and making sure that, that people are, are being paid a, a proper wage and are receiving benefits, that there is no social program that can replace that. If I uh, add to what uh, he has said uh, on this uh, job loss, this uh, pre trade agreement with Korea, this uh, provides you with some different uh, opportunity for job creation. As a matter of fact, even prior to this uh, pre trade agreement, more and more Korean companies have come to the United States to create jobs. They opened uh, automobile production facilities in uh, Alabama, Montgomery, Alabama, and also they are going to open another one in uh, West Point, Georgia, and also Samsung brought in money. As I told you, our overall investment volume between the two countries is almost a half of your uh, size, and therefore this is not one-way street. U.S. investment to Korea is about $34 billion. It's not going to hollow out all of your business and job opportunity. While our investment in the United States is almost $17, $18 billion, your half size of your investment in Korea, this is two-way street. So as a, as a result of this free trade agreement, more and more Korean investment will be coming to the United States to create jobs. This is not one-way street. That has to be taken, uh, that has to be understood rather well. If I may also add, you raise a very valid concern about how there are, you know, certain losers in this. And I think, you know, even among the most pro-globalization free traders, there is a growing recognition of the need to ensure that the benefits of free trade are more widely dispersed among all economic classes and not just the big corporations and not just, you know, for example, in, in those in IT or entertainment. I, we all agree with that. I think it's also important to note, though, that globalization is happening no matter what we do. It's a fact of, of where the world is going. And I think rather than focusing on trying to protect jobs by closing free trade agreements or closing, not seeking free greater market access for our U.S. workers, I think more emphasis needs to be uh, placed and you know, we need help from our Congress leaders to fund education programs to prepare our kids to be ready for the globalized world because it's going to happen. And unless we prepare our kids and our, our workers to, to face that market, we are going to get locked out and suffer much more losses. Thank you. Thanks to my fellow panelists. And to all of you. You've been listening to U.S. Representative Diane Watson, South Korean Ambassador Lee Tae-sik, Jesse Swanheiser of the California Fair Trade Coalition, and former U.S. Trade Representative Brian Peck with regular guest host Andres Martinez. This is Socalo Radio the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. Socalo Radio is supported by a generous grant from the James Irvine Foundation and by the California Endowment. For information on upcoming Socalo events and to download past radio programs, visit SocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. The executive producer for Socolo Radio is Peter Stenshold. Douglas Gary is our engineer. Thank you for tuning in.
looking for something.